0: Hey everyone, welcome to Required Reading. Thanks for indulging us as we took a month off, but we returned with a good episode—a very long episode—on *A Confederacy of Dunces* uh, by John Kennedy Toole. I don't know why I keep calling him O'Toole. I apologize, but I'm not good at my job. Anyway, we appreciate all the support you've given us, and if you are listening and want to keep supporting us, look up Marist Auction. You're auctioning off two uh, seats. On the Required Reading Podcast. Uh, we do this for no money, but we work for a nonprofit, and any way we can support that nonprofit supports us. So, thanks for all you do. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for receiving. And I hope you had a great new year and happy reading in 2023. Bye, everyone. Also, just a quick note due to various illnesses around the holidays, we had to record this virtually the audio will be a little bit different than it usually is, but the content is just as good as always. Thanks. Welcome to Required Reading. This week we return after a brief break to talk about A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole, a book published, I think, post-mortem, a kind of i don't know what you'd call this a comedy of errors perhaps um but a classic and pulitzer prize winner that was suggested by mrs betsy holcomb so say hi betsy
1: hello i'm so excited to talk about this novel today
0: and we have on panel with us my co-host mike carroll mike mike yeah happy to be here you can tell all of our marks are different because it's being recorded over christmas break so we're all home recording virtually (laughs) To (laughs) varying degrees of technological success. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So um, I guess we'll start with a very kind of straightforward question of Betsy, why did you want to do this book?
1: Oh, yes, I'm so glad. All right. So this novel is, I would say, probably my favorite of all time. So if someone said, you know, what's a book, which, you know, I love asking people this question, like if you only had one book to recommend to me, what would it be? And um, I love hearing what people say. You know, I feel like you really get a, a chance to know someone based on what book they recommend. And I first read it back in about 2012. And my husband, I was my boyfriend at the time. We read it out loud to each other. So I think that would be my one pitch, I think, about how to consume it, is that the mm-hmm. audio is really great, whether you're reading it out loud or whether you're listening to the audiobook. Um, the audiobook version I have from Audible does a really good job of capturing the characters. And I think that really gets at the heart of what I love about this novel set in South, set in New Orleans. Um, and just the contrast between Ignatius J. Riley, this larger-than-life character, whose statue I got to see when I was in New Orleans this summer. There's a statue of him. Um, and so uh to capture the contrast between the world he lives in inside his head inside his very odd body that gets very just des- described a lot in the novel and the contrast between those things and what reality is in new orleans in what seems to me like the 1950s and 60s right around that time so i just love it i just rereading it this time just made me laugh out loud i definitely saw um some things this time around that i didn't the first time so i'm, I'm eager to get into that how about y'all
0: um so like when I was younger um my brother was one of those people who just read a lot. He read more than me and he had friends with English teachers and stuff and so he stumbled across this and recommended it to me. Um though it was one of those books that you look smart by having on your bookshelf but I had never read <laughs> um, until about 3 4 years ago. Um and it immediately clicked to me like the sarcastic anti-intellectualism of the whole thing, yeah. the uh, you know the irony of who this colossally annoying main character is like it, it's rare in a in a in a novel specifically to have a main character that the author clearly does not like so yeah. much.
1: Interesting. That's so fascinating. You say that. Okay.
0: Well, because you have to live with this person, so yeah. you want to make him now. You know, maybe I'm projecting. Obviously. The author uh, died something like 11 years or 12 years before it was even published. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's some question as to what that original manuscript even looked like. It's it's Mm -hmm. kind of like talking about Emily Dickinson where so much of her stuff was written on napkins and then was compiled by her family with punctuation changed and grammar changed later, right? So we don't really know perhaps maybe he hated himself and that's why he made this character like him in some way. I don't know, but it's just, Usually, you write a character you want to sit with for months at a time while you write this book. And Ignatius is such a, a horrible person. It's amazing. Um, yeah, yeah, that's
2: it, it's really interesting to hear you say that, Nick, because that's one of the. So, so let me just start by saying that this was my first reading of it, Betsy. I know that you and I, you and I, had to cross paths a couple of times. Uh, And you you had said you just have to read it you have to read it and then (laughs) when 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 you saw that it was on the uh, the list this season for the podcast you were so excited and you you kept saying you have to read you have to read you have to read it and over the course of the last year this book has come up in some facet or another like three or four different times I was talking with my brother-in-law and it and it came up I think I was talking with another teacher at Maris and it came up Betsy it's come up a couple of times talking with you so being able to sit down and and finally make my way through it. I'm fascinated to talk with you, Betsy, about some of the things that you're finding so appealing. But Nick, what you were talking about there with, with not liking the main character, I think that that's a really interesting point because Ignatius is not a particularly likable character. Certainly not. But I wonder the extent to which through his his indignance and through his um through the frustrations that the reader have that the reader has with Ignatius I wonder if we're supposed to like him or not and Betsy I'm curious if you like Ignatius or not since you're talking so so fondly about this novel and how much you like it part of me seems to think that you that you might like Ignatius so Betsy can you share with us a little bit about what you think about Ignatius this
1: is great okay so I think it's helpful to note that um, John Kennedy Toole, we've mentioned, uh, he committed suicide um, in, I believe, 1969. This, this Then his mom found the manuscript and then tried to get it published. And he had tried to get it published before he had died, um, but it, to, to no success. Um, and so then uh, he finally his mom takes the manuscript to Walker Percy, who writes the forward of the novel and says- An unbelievable
2: forward, by the way, Betsy. It's like, it's so good. And I think that it sets up the novel so well, that forward is one of my favorites, actually. That I think that I've read, but anyways, I'm sorry, I'm What did you like about it? That's so great. What did
1: you like well, about it? The the
2: the fact that well, and I, I think that perhaps it's because of the fact that I'd, currently with some of my writing, I'm also in the 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 querying stage and trying to get my own work published. So the whole story behind behind the kind of the the journey that this text went on in order to try and get it to, in order to try and get it published and just i could see myself in the reader's shoes of being and the, the, the correct me if i'm wrong it's been a a, a, a Uh, a short while since I, since I was reading the forward particularly, but there were a couple of lines in there where, where he was talking about like, oh, well, I didn't want to like it at first. And then I went from not really liking it to being wanting to give it a shot. And then by the, by, by the end of like the first chapter or so, he was saying that he was laughing out loud at the, at at the reading of this text. Um, But the, the, I think that it's in the forward, maybe it's, maybe it's in like the preface to the, to the story where it's talking about how you'll know, a, it, it, this must be in the preface, uh, but that you'll know a genius when you see that an entire, that, that all of the dunces have conspired against him. And yeah. I think that the, that line just sets up so well the remainder of the story and Ignatius's genius amidst this society that he hates and in some ways, I think is detesting him as well. But anyways, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I interrupted when you were talking about the forward, but I, I just, I think that the the journey that the text goes on in 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 coming to life and the way that we're able to read it is just a fascinating journey to me.
1: It is, I agree. And I think, you know, I, I'm fascinated by Catholic fiction and um, I'm sort of in this pursuit and I, I might even allow some of that my interest in that area to influence our conversation today, um, because defining that is very interesting. Um, but I, I do think I'm going to make the argument that Confederacy of Dunst is a Catholic novel um, and one of the best um, for a couple of different reasons. I do want to go ahead and mention, since we're on the um, the Walker Percy's preface. Let's go or forward. Let's go ahead and get his description of Ignatius J. Riley. Um, Ignatius J. Riley, uh, without progenitor of any literature I know of, slob, extraordinary, a mad Oliver Hardy, a fat Don Quixote, a perverse Thomas Aquinas, all rolled into one, who is in violent revolt against the entire modern age, lying in his flannel nightshirt in a back bedroom on Constantinople Street in New Orleans, who, between gigantic seizures of flatulence and and irritations is filling dozens of big chief tablets with invective. Listen, Ignatius J. Riley is larger than life. He is a man who wears a <clears throat> what is the name of the hat that he wears that has the ear cover It's like a,
2: it? it's like a hunting cap, right? Is it's, the, it's uh, like a green hunting cap the way that it's described?
1: Yeah, right. he he is bulging out of his clothes. He and he's in New Orleans. It does not get cold there. He's not, this this hat. This, these clothes do not make any sense. Like. In terms of where he lives, um, but I think um, for me, I, it's really interesting, Nick, that you say that um, John Kennedy O'Too- John Kennedy Tool doesn't like Ignatius J. Riley. I think that's a really interesting point. And knowing that um, he writes this novel, he's dealing with what sounds like quite a bit of like suffering in his you know late life he has an early kind of uh he he goes and and teaches early very young at a university um but is writing his own things that are not getting accepted and the 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 difficult you know experience of that um but I don't know I I like him he's disgusting and he's outrageous but I'm I'm I I want would watch this if this is a reality tv show I want I want every scene of Ignatius J. Riley and all of the grossness and all of the, you know, just disgusting kind of habits that we have him. I just am fascinated by his response to life. So I I love these different scenes he goes into. And really the novel is, we get the very beginning, um, they're in the quarter, the French quarter and shopping. And we get this scene where um, they uh, have this encounter with some of the characters. Um, But then leaving the French Quarter, um, his mom like destroys the back deck of a house or or of a business or something. And so then that they have to get money to to pay for that repair. And that's what his mom, Irene, pushes him into into working. And so we get these, these scenes where he's trying to find a place where he can work and make money to make up for his mom, who, by the way, I'm pretty sure it's it's a, like, she's a straight up alcoholic. She hides wine in the oven. She has like three or four beers in the French Quarter at this, this one main bar that is uh, where some of the, the, the action takes place in the novel. And so here he is trying to um, fit into this these different worlds. He can't work at, a, at any like an office area. He can't work at a hot dog stand. He just doesn't fit anywhere. And I, I find it enormously satisfying seeing the arc of his life that we get in this portrait of, of time um, in his life. And I I feel empathetic towards the characters. I know that might be odd, but but I I don't know. I, I find them to be difficult to like see their responses to the world, whether it's you know, Ignatius J. Riley or Irene or really any of the characters, they're all kind of grotesque, but in a in a I don't know, like a I want kind to of an
2: endearing way right that's i think that there's there's definitely something to that and i the the i think that the the hunting cap as as it, it does end up playing a role kind of comically throughout the trajectory of the story but i think that you're right in saying that it, this new Orleans is not a place where he would need to be wearing such a like a warm article of clothing but i think that maybe that's kind of a microcosm for, for his out of placeness that he, mm. that he kind of is out of place. And I wonder as you're talking about Ignatius, if that might be something that you're finding kind of endearing is his out of placeness. Mm. Um, and the fact that his reality doesn't really exist in reality, if that makes any sense. Mm. In, in listening to the, the forward again, the description that stuck out the most to me was a fat Don Quixote, which I think is, is so fitting that that we have a character in Don Quixote who's kind of on this quest, if you will, Um, but it's all meaningless and it's all kind of in his head. And I think that that's very apt as a description of Ignatius. And all the while, like Don Quixote, he's kind of out of place. And I wonder if that's part of what you're seeing as an endearing quality of Ignatius. All
1: right, Nick. Have we convinced you that he's a likable
0: character? Are you still <laughs> <alive>? not. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know, man. I, pretty much everything he does is completely irredeemable. Now, the interesting thing is that from a narrative perspective, is everyone's right about everything uh, somehow. Because, like, uh, we'll get there. Because, like, th- I will say, for those of you trying to follow along at home, this book's narrative structure is kind of, Almost difficult to follow. Uh, mm-hmm. Betsy, your description of it being a reality show is actually quite apt <laughs> because it's almost like broken into little episodes. We have the episode where he nearly gets arrested at the beginning. We have, you know, then they go out. You should go out into the world, more Ignatius, and his mom. Uh, I mean, based on what the other characters say, she's a drunk because he drove her to drink. Yeah. Um. So we have that scene at the bar where the mom drives home drunk because the the son has gas or whatever. His uh,
1: valve, we do not, or whatever. This is the best part. His yeah. valve is like its own, its own character that he's always talking about, about his, his valve closing. Okay, the, this physical response he has to being out of place. Don't mean to cut you off. Keep going, Nick. You're doing great. No, no,
0: please. Um, <laughs> then we have the scene where he does kind of get his job at this <laughs> pant factory, um, where he not only tries to overthrow his manager he nearly gets the whole thing put out of business because he writes a snarky letter. Again, he's there for a week before he causes a family business to go out of business, Uh, like right there. Then he's on the hot dog cart where he can't stop himself from eating all the profits. I mean, it it reads like, so I apologize if you're confused in the narrative structure itself, but the book is told very episodically. Uh, It really almost could be rather than a movie, um, a six episode series or something because each movement could be a little 20 to 30 minute episode and be perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. Um the the thing that I think is I don't know, it's it's almost funny about it. It's kind of a riff on I would guess baby boomers because he's supposed to be 30 and this is set in the 60s. Um, but is that he's kind of over-educated to no purpose.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, he rubs in people's faces that he's a master's student or he has a master's degree um, in question mark. Uh, no, it's medieval history. It's something yes, like that. Yes, it's no. medieval yeah, history. Exactly. It is, Nick, yeah. Something but completely it impractical.
1: It might as well be nothing, right? I mean, who, yeah, that's, that's no, there's no practical result that can come from that to the point that he write, fills up all of these these like tablets. Like legal, tablets.
2: L- legal pads is kind of like what I'm envisioning, right? That's it, yeah manifestos you mean
1: yeah. oh exactly and they will they will exist well beyond his death right he needs to hold. he grabs them at the end of the novel we'll talk about kind of how they get there but at the end of the novel he's having uh his girlfriend um Myrna Minkoff collect all of these tablets that are his like crown jewel right he's he's left all of this destruction in his wake and and, and yet he's so proud of these of these uh these tablets
0: I guess we should introduce her because she's probably more significant like and again mike you might have to help me with some of the literature parts here but i guess irene the mother is almost like a kind of like a greek choir or something like because all she does is parrot what he's doing and reinforce what he's doing but also mm-hmm. triggers him until <laughs> until he's not there and then she kind of hates him uh i talking to the neighbors kind of some of the best parts of this yeah um but you mentioned myrna minkoff we should kind of mention myrna minkoff uh, so, is in many ways his complete opposite. Mm-hmm. Uh she was an undergrad when he was a grad student. And she, on the other hand, has used her education to become kind of an activist. Um though it's very clear that Ignatius doesn't understand why she bothers to be an activist. Um and th- like everything is different, right? Like uh she's Jewish, she's dated a lot, she's kind of flirty. She goes to the I guess the big city, New York City, which he can't co- comprehend. It's filled with communists and like yada yada yada. Um, and she has protested a lot. He not used his degree for almost anything. And this is the '60s where you know liberal arts professors are leading protests. So he's just kind of that. That's why it's my favorite scene. Probably is where he thinks he's going to be a great labor leader to immediately screw it up, which is <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, but Myrna's kind of the love interest, kind of not
1: um they write yeah. to each other they're long distance lovers yeah. um and they they write letters to each other but then the novel ends with uh her showing up and kind of saving the day and getting him out yeah, of yeah. out of these this, this situation he's this hole he's dug himself into
0: <laughs> which is being committed
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah right his mom has been finally convinced to commit him to um oh they just refer to it as charity capital c charity but yeah, yeah like, a, like a like a mental institution, um, and she's convinced they're gonna come and take him. And um, but again, uh, yeah, there's just all these different episodes that. So wait, did either of you? Did you did you read it? Did you listen to it? Did you read it out loud? What'd you do?
0: The first time I read it, I I read read it, and then this time around I listened to it as an audio book. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: I I also listened to it as an audio book, Betsy.
1: Okay. What did you think of the performances or of the like did it did it change anything for you do you think nick
0: i mean there's you <laughs> being a southerner, me, me a, me a little southerner myself, it's really funny to hear the different accents yeah because they give ignatius c riley this foghorn leghorn like <laughs> which would I mean which totally appropriate you know there's that kind of new orleans uh southern louisiana drawl that he rightfully has mm-hmm. uh which just it's and it, it makes him sound fatter than even i imagined him on the page there's something about the way they made his jaw mm-hmm. that's just and it's and it's 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 summed up in one expression which he says six thousand times through the book which is oh my god right it's <laughs> it's, it's that jowly back of your throat like yeah, the teeth don't even touch it's like oh my god and it just it it makes it feel so much more like out of sorts because again when you want an intellectual voice you do that new england kind of soften your mm-hmm. accent to sound more smart and he sounds it just yeah, it does it does flesh out the character and just because i don't like the character it doesn't mean i didn't like the book sure. um
1: he is, is, he also- he is, yeah, unlikable in, we are, yeah. There is very, it's interesting that you say he's irredeemable. And I think that the idea that he is irredeemable, I mentioned in our, the, one of the last podcasts I was on with y'all, the difference w- once was described to me between comedy, literature, and drama. Mm-hmm. And that's that in comedies, or in art, I guess you could say, because I think it applies to like TV shows too, in or movies, um, in comedies, characters don't change, or in comedic characters, they don't change. But in in tragedies, that the characters do change and evolve. And we, I don't think we get any changing from Ignatius J. Riley because he ever he has an excuse for why things are happening to him, and he doesn't ever see that it's his through his own weaknesses, through his own. I mean, even at the end, he's being carried away by by. Um, Myrna Minkoff and he's like you have no idea what I've been through right like everything is like happening to him and but I think that's what makes the the novel so funny is that we as the reader understand that it's him causing his own uh, causing all of this chaos by his own flaws Um, and his own flaws come from feeling so uncomfortable about reality and not feeling like he can that he anyone understands him or that he can exist in in this reality that that he's having to exist in so i don't know i i do feel i i empathize with him even even when he's doing gross stuff like in his room with his glove
0: (laughs) well i mean so uh, mike we we've talked about this too and i like you said betsy you were on a conversation that we did similar it's kind of hard to say what makes a, a an antagonist or a hero or whatever um because He's clearly the main character Mm -hmm. and i guess it depends on what how you interpret the ending i know we're not even there yet but this whole movie is a comedy of, or this whole book is a comedy of errors Mm -hmm. except for at the end he does the one thing that he'd been unable to do since grad school which is leave home Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. right so if you look at it that way he does grow as a character Mm. um but to call him a protagonist in any way is kind of a stretch of the definition yeah and i think that the to imply that nick
2: almost suggests that there needs to be an antagonist and i don't see this text as i mean i you you can't pin down any of the characters as being an antagonist in this story if anything i think that the society that that ignatius is in would represent kind of that antagonist that's the that's the thing that he or whether, whether it's the antagonist or not it's definitely on the other end of the tension of the conflicts that that ignatius is uh, is undergoing and i think that it's interesting nick that you say that because at the end of the story he's not only leaving home he's also leaving this representation of the society that he's in and in doing so i don't know if you want to call it fleeing definitely kind of feels like he's fleeing at the end of the story he's kind of like fleeing from from society um but there's there's a distancing of ignatius from that antagonistic uh society that he's living in, at least from how it is that he sees it, he self-proclaims that he hates society, that he does not like society. And that's from the very beginning. And that altercation that he has, in which Officer Mancuso ends up arresting uh what is it? The the old man Robish Rabashaw is and ends up being arrested in in the place of Ignatius, though Ignatius is the one that looks as though he is suspicious. Uh, and that's what that's what kind of leads to um them kind of going and fleeing to the night of joy which is the the like strip club that they that they end up uh that a lot of betsy as you're saying a lot of the actions of the story end up taking place irene ends up drinking quite a bit leading to the accident which is the inciting incident that causes all of these occasions in which ignatius is is pegged up against the society that he hates Mm -hmm. in needing to find a job in the society that he hates. And that's the rest of the plot. I mean, that's the entire plot in a nutshell is that we have this inciting event in which Ignatius does not... Does not fit in society. It leads to a car accident, in which Ignatius needs to get a job in the society that he hates, and then all the conflicts that arise in these different episodes. Whether it's the like costume party that he's trying to do a like a demonstration, like a political demonstration <laughs> at, or whether it's the the hot dog stand that he ends up with the the hijinks that ends up transpiring there, or it's in the countless number of times that he goes to the movie theaters and is like heckling the like at at the at the theater he's like heckling the the like the the um the like the actors that are up on the stage who clearly can't see him but all of these different moments in which he's trying to get a job it's all him trying to exist and find his place in society and he's failing miserably at all these or whether it's the the levy's pants uh it's all these different episodes in which he's trying to to submit in a way to the society that he hates and getting a job in order to be able to make the money from this accident that that he needs to do and that's the entire plot so nick i know a lot of times that we start off these podcasts by kind of like running through the plot well that's kind of it we 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 get this inciting this inciting kind of incident followed by the accident which which Kind of causes the the need for this money to be made. and then it's all Ignatius failing to be able to be successful in a job in his society. So that's kind of it in terms of the plot. Uh, I know a lot of times we kind of start by marching our way through the plot, but there's not much more to march our way through,
0: yeah no. and I mean, we we can kind of just since you mentioned it as well. Like I don't know if this is a literary trope I'm not missing some some Shakespearean character, but he really is a character that everyone he comes in in like contact with he kind of ruins their lives like yeah. officer mancuso is kind of the foil that again you mentioned cuz he's he's kind of our through line the entire book in some ways but like he just keeps getting demoted he keeps getting fired and every time it's this man in a damn green hunting cap like yeah. I I think Um, that he's
2: probably he's definitely the first example and he's probably the one that goes throughout the story the entire the the entire time. But Mr. Levy of the Levy pants industry (laughs) is probably the best example of that, Nick, because there you get you get this guy who like is just trying to like he's trying to run this company that's not even his. It's his dad's who's passed away and he's just trying to run this company and unknowingly or he and he he. Ignatius has long been fired f- from the company but right. he's dealing with all these repercussions in a in a a in a way that is it's like tearing down not only his company but also his marriage and his livelihood and like everything is falling apart at the seams for poor Mr. Levy and it's and it's not his fault at all it's all Ignatius's fault but he doesn't but Ignatius never ends up taking the blame for it and at the end of the story anyway so it's I don't know it's it's this kind of tightly wound um comedy of errors I guess you could say
1: I guess I'm also curious too I I do feel like the setting of the and all of these all the characters he. Um, that Ignatius de interacts with, I don't, I'm not sure that they're all kind of perfect or idyllic whenever we meet them. There seems to be like a, a brokenness that is, even if it's slight, it's kind of built into a lot of the different characters that we meet. You know, even like if we're talking about his mom who is driven to drink because of her of her son, she also completely enables him to be who he who he is and act how he acts I I think that's the thing that stood out to me in the two different readings because when I first read it I was you know in in a different stage in life than I am now as a a wife and a mom and I I kept thinking like I didn't find her as sympathetic as I did the first time that I I read this because I feel like she there are no boundaries she break you know she's always the one who's kind of justifying his behavior so I guess I guess what I like about it and I could be completely off base here but I think what I like about it is that the characters, every character that Ignatius interacts with, that they're perfectly written and the stage is set for them to just drive each other crazy and to make make each other's lives worse. I mean, Ignatius, his, his, every interaction he has is negative, even if it's with someone like Myrna, who he supposedly loves, They still, she still drives him crazy. And so I, I think the hilarity ensues when you've got the contrast of the characters that are so well written to have each other's vices get on each other's nerves so perfectly but i could be wrong i just i just again i guess here i am defending him a little bit um and even though he's so awful i i I just see a brokenness in the entire that runs throughout the the narrative but I, i love the idea of thinking about you know is he an antagonist to the setting he's in to new orleans in the 1950s and 60s is you know because from his perspective he would say new orleans during this time period is literally breaking him apart right the cause of all of his of all of his sufferings i love that we don't exactly know who the antagonist and protagonists are that's really well said from y'all earlier
2: yeah yeah i think that it's it's i think you described it so well there betsy and it's the the stage has been set for the dominoes to fall. Before these characters e- ever even end up encountering one another, right? And I think that that's that's part of what makes it so intriguing to me is the tightly wound characters, but also the tightly wound plot, where everything seems to be a thread from the previous episode. We we talked so much about how episodic this novel feels, but at the same time, there's these threads that end up kind of weaving their way through that are integral to this. tightly wound plot that has been constructed so like uh jones who's the the African American who is sweeping the floors at the strip club at the night of joy ends up changing the address on these suspicious packages from that that he sees in order to try and like bring down the like the owner of this establishment. And then it's through that same changing of addresses that Ignatius, when he's running the hot dog cart, ends up with these pornographic pictures that are that are under his care, which it just so happens to be that in this picture his book that he had lent to officer mancuso that had been stolen by by gus ended up being the 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 kind of final the final thread that allows for ignatius to make his way to the nightclub on the debut of this this stripping performance that involves a parrot and and uh and pirate earrings and all the bells and whistles, but it's kind of like that moment where you can see all of these different threads of Jones changing the address on this package that had been stolen of of, of, of these packages of of pornography, for lack of a better word, that, that have fallen into Ignatius's hands that happened to have the very same book that he had given to Officer Mancuso when he seemed down on the dumps in order for Ignatius to find himself in the unlikeliest of situations, trying to trying to kind of redeem this, this stripper who's at the right. night of joy, who right. happens to be holding in a picture that was taken, his favorite book. I mean, yeah. the, the way that these threads end up kind of weaving back in with one another, it's it, it's very tightly wound. And I find that to be, from a narrative perspective, really intriguing that throughout this very, episodic story, you get these threads that continue to be woven through.
1: Yeah. And I guess I think when we coming back to the point I guess I was maybe trying to circle around earlier, it's interesting, isn't it that like we've got a strip club, we've got pornography, people trying to make money. and oh, how about the owner of the bar, not a joy? Filling up the bottle. Filling with it with water. water.
2: Yeah, 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 no? absolutely.
1: So, so if we're going to say that it's like Ignatius de Raleigh is the, the the you know, the awful guy in this, you know, great setting where he does destroy people's lives. I just see it as like destruction on destruction. Like it's like a, like, or like brokenness and brokenness, right? That they're just kind of perfectly written equal, um, not equal, but perfectly written characters to like annoy each other or, or that, that it all kind of blows up.
0: Well, that's kind of what I meant when I said that, like, somehow everyone is right about everything. Uh Like, uh you know, like, (laughs) we also just need to... Like some of the great 1960s insults, um, Uh like Robichaux calling the cops communists. (laughs) uh, And then, you know, everyone... And them, and everyone infantilizing Ignatius, right? That opening scene, Mm -hmm. Is him outside of a department store waiting on his mom, and they try to arrest him for vagrancy effectively. And um, and I forget who it is, it might have even been Robichaud, but he goes, How dare you stop a boy from waiting for his mama? And he's right, like,
1: right. The man is 30 years old. <laughs> yeah, with yeah. a master's degree. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, well
0: and of course, the irony is for someone who thinks society, is this den of like inequity and, and horribleness that this whole thing really takes place in the French Quarter, um, which you know you can still smell from here? Like it's just it's 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 funny. It's it's really putting him in the worst possible situation, when especially when his white savior complex kicks in and he tries to save this woman just because she's leaning against a globe naked and holding a book. <laughs> she's some poor other intellectual who can't find work. like it's that that part again it's it's so funny how out of sorts he is it really does make the the book all the more charming um so yeah
1: and and to go back to um to mike's point about the book so it's one of the main i think like symbols in the book is you know he went to school to tulane uh didn't leave new orleans right um to study medieval studies i think or medieval literature or something like that but this book that he gives uh that ends up being, uh, I guess he, he gives it to what Mancuso first, and then it, through a comedy of errors, ends up uh, on on the the face of the woman who's in the pornographic photos is Boethius on the on the consolidation of philosophy, um, and so what a, I mean, to have even this book in this context um, is is just outrageous. But for him, he's being the savior figure by bringing. Um, the truth and and beauty of Fortuna to, to this, this broken world. Um, I just, it's, it's, it's amazing. And so I, um, just in doing a little bit of of reading about this book, um, Boethius on the Consolidation of Philosophy is written in 523, but it's enormously influential in medieval times, um, late medieval times um, on, you know, in in Renaissance philosophy. So he um, is, I think also y'all, I went to a Catholic college, went to Catholic grad school. I know Ignatius J. Riley. Like I <laughs> I I've met him before, you know, and I think just um just uh then maybe that's what what makes me you know at all uh empathetic towards him because he I just I know he exists. He he there are he is walking around our world today and it is it is it is fascinating to to see um Kennedy O'Toole put together, or John Kennedy O'Toole put together uh, a novel that, you know, holds a mirror up to uh, actual people who, who exist. And I think he captures the feel of New Orleans so beautifully. So going to, um, to New Orleans, going to the French Quarter, I mean, just the way that they talk and the way that they um, this this culture that's deeply Catholic. Oh, this is the other thing I was thinking. So New Orleans is a, a part of the United States that's so deeply Catholic. You know, they Mardi Gras is a um, both a festival that goes on for weeks and really has very little to do with religion. But you know, Mardi Gras that Tuesday is the day before Lent starts. So you've got this kind of like Catholic context that's always underneath the surface, but that probably doesn't look like it affects the daily lives of many people if you're talking about the parades and and things that happen but it's still you know underneath the surface there and and i'm not you know saying that and criticizing new orleans catholics or new orleans at all but just that you've got this really fascinating mix of of cultures kind of coming together that uh where catholicism is both an influence and also not an influence um so i just think that's fascinating in in terms of capturing this part of the united states and and Catholicism is, is influence on that part of the, of the country.
2: Yeah, and I think I, the, I don't think that you need to look much further than Ignatius's name in order to see a lot of that, right? You get uh, Ignatius yeah. who, in, I, the, there, it's impossible to hear the name Ignatius and not think of Ignatius of Loyola, mm-hmm. who it just visually, if the, and I, I know I'm, I'm saying this, I think, I think it's Ignatius of Loyola who has a statue at, at, uh, at Boston College. And Betsy, you were talking about how, how you've seen the Ignatius statue in New Orleans and just how visually different that would be than what almost seems to be a foil in Ignatius of Loyola, who is always perceived as being like very almost like beanpole thin. And mm. you get like the complete and utter contrast of that with the description that you get of Ignatius in this story. But so many times throughout the story, Ignatius is citing his issues with society as being a problem of society falling off in terms of theology and geometry and that's that's it's such an interesting dichotomy there that these are the things that that Ignatius is finding issue with in society you've spoken so beautifully already about the the issues that he has with this theology and and how he's almost on this crusade in a will in, in, in a way and an, an unwilling crusade into society about about this kind of uh, white savior movement that he's trying to that he's trying to bring about. Um, I think that you can see a little bit of that with the failed demonstration that he has at Levy Pants as well. But you also see him, him saying that society has fallen off in terms of the geometry of things. And geometry seems like such a strange indictment for him to be bringing towards society. Um, But the moments I know he brings up the the how there needs to be or there should be a geometry to things Mm -hmm. when he's talking about the uh, the the riot that he's trying to start in the levy pants and that that nick you were saying that it was one of the funniest moments in the text for you it was also the 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 moment that i think i found the funniest was his attempt at bringing about this this like political uh labor unionist uh uh riot if you will which ends with like the falling of a plant off of the off of the windowsill and also ignatius being ignatius being fired but it's in that moment that he says that society has lost its or no he says that there should be a geometry to things mm-hmm. and that is that is so striking to me because it's not talking about to to the best of my knowledge or at least in my reading he's not talking about geometry talking about like shapes and measurements it seems mm-hmm. like he's talking about how there should be a balance Mm-hmm. And a symmetry to things. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be something that he thinks that there should be in society, where there is not. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if if that is part of what part of the issue that Ignatius takes towards the very human institution of society. And mm-hmm. I think that that's part of where a lot of the hilarity ends up coming through is Ignatius's, um, seeing of these flaws in society and how there doesn't seem to be that balance to that structure where he thinks that there should be balance to and geometry if you will uh to to society
1: what's well, really well said and i think we referring to him as a white savior makes a lot of sense i almost wonder if Um, because it's part of that we've got some real racism in the novel for sure you know reading it in 2022 is very different than 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 the way that it would be read you know in the 19 well in 1980 when it was published even Um, but I do think he sees himself as an intellectual savior right so he is this way but an intellectual savior seeing the chaos of philosophy the chaos of people's choices of morality um, and it's it's so fascinating, and I think one of the things that I find so um, um, so fascinating about his character is that he sees himself as an intellectual savior, but it's entirely disconnected from his body. So. Um, this is not, you know, a, a, a saint, right? Or maybe he—I don't know—he thinks he's a saint. I think a, a hero, a saint coming in to to really reform people's lives in ways that they cannot see that they are flawed, um, but that, that that's so disconnected from his own flaws, um, just makes him. Uh, it really, to me, like gets to the heart of what is so uh, fascinating about about his character, and and because. You know, good theology is incarnational theology in that good theology is something that is like so um, bodily and so um, so yeah, connected to what is going on in in, in the everyday life and everyday world that mist. Well, that mis- mm-hmm. this is a, I'm reading Mystery Manners, rereading an essay in uh, in Mystery Manners by O'Connor, and she's talking about how good Catholic. Catholic, oh sorry siri interrupted me but and i've got my dog here also interrupting us but um good Mm -hmm. catholic uh literature is incarnational it involves sensory right so like a good observation of what's happening in everyday life but also this that that opens up into a world of mystery that um catholic and christians see this kind of reality that exists here and the mystery beyond and so I think that is, it makes me curious about, about this novel and how the main character is not practicing that, oh. but how maybe, I don't know, what do you think? Do you think, uh, what, how does this hold up as a Catholic novel? If we're talking about incarnation or Catholic culture or um, holiness or any any of those things, how do you think it holds up in those areas?
0: I mean, if we wanted to put it in that way, I would say Ignatius, ironically, is Thinks he's all those things, but isn't. Yeah. I mean, like, obviously, we're talking about someone named Ignatius. Like, like, like Mike was saying, we don't get it, even a I have so many thoughts swirling around. I apologize, I'm a little confused, but we don't even know where he got that master's degree from, other than it must have been in New Orleans, because the one time like he has one story, which is when he tried to go to Baton Rouge on a greyhound bus mm-hmm. and how awful that was that he didn't even make it. Mm-hmm. So we assume that. This thing that educated him so much and you know quote enlightened him must have been in the city he hates so much. Mm-hmm. So he went to Loyola, right? <laughs> Loyola in downtown, his namesake, which I would assume, mm-hmm. um, or Tulane next door, right? Because mm-hmm. um, even LSU, when this is published, is actually in Baton Rouge. So, oh, right? Um, and of course, on top of that, he, he um, the 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 the, na- the philosopher he name checks constantly is Boethius, um, who is a roman he was the one who tried to you know meld aristotelian and platonic philosophy with christianity he was the chief philosopher for the court of theodoric and he was killed for his beliefs like tortured and executed so you have this character named after a catholic saint who whose most important person like the person he studied is someone who also died for their faith and Mm -hmm. all he can do is complain it's kind Mm -hmm. of you know and um the one reason I don't feel very Catholic that this is a very Catholic novel, not nearly enough guilt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he, he does lay out the guilt pretty hard, um, which I don't know. I I, I he
2: I guilt say, trips his mom
0: constantly.
2: Oh yeah. Irene mean, gets the guilt trip <laughs> for no both Big the time.
1: reader and for Ignatius. Big time. <laughs> um
0: and I guess we also have the comparison he makes constantly. Uh, to cassandra and to the goddess fortuna right yeah uh, and fortune has smiled unfavorably upon him and that cassandra is someone who uh, in greek philosophy or greek myth i guess um has the gift of prophecy and is always right but no one believes her
1: yeah uh, which oh,
0: that's perfect, perfect. <laughs>
1: That's amazing. Yeah and that,
2: that that goes Nick that goes so well with the the preface quote as well that sets up the entire novel which is that uh, when a genius is born into society you'll know the signs because of the fact that all of the dunces will conspire against him right and right. that's the exact that, that's exactly what it is that we get with Ignatius. I think that the one thing that keeps this from being such a clear cut kind of white savior E kind of a text, for me is his reluctance. It, it doesn't seem like he like he wants to be out there. He he certainly in fact does not want to be out there, in 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 any way, mm. uh, kind of like helping out the society that he's in. And in the moment, I'm I'm thinking okay, we, we've kind of marched our way through in a very ignacious way through the plot of through the plot of this story. But the the one thing that we haven't talked about is. When Mr. Levy uh, eventually discovers that he's being sued for like fifty thousand dollars because of the, uh, or or it might have even been more than that. I can't remember the exact the exact amount or what the trend, what, what the amount would would be in today's society versus in the in the society in which the story is written. But he's being sued because of this. Uh, because of the letter that Ignatius wrote and so it comes to Mr. Levy who needs to track down the writer of this letter and all throughout the throughout this kind of escapade Mr. Levy is in the midst of a um, an argument with his wife who wants to blame him for everything and send letters to their daughters blaming him for all of the the wronggoings that are that are that are taking place but Mr. Levy eventually finds out that it, or suspects, that it was Ignatius that wrote wrote this letter that ended up with this tremendous lawsuit and what does Ignatius do? But he blames it on Miss Trixie. He blames it on the he blames it on one of the other co-workers. And dementia. Yes, with Miss Trixie says, Oh, well, it must, it must have been me. Yes. And and she totally takes the blame for this. And that's what ends up with Mr. Levy being able to say, Aha, I was right to his wife. It ends up with the the whole kind of um, episode, if you will, of the the kind of this this hijinks that they found themselves in, being able to fall onto old Miss Trixie with dementia, and it all kind of writes itself off, and, and the 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 episodes end, ends up kind of solving itself but Ignatius totally like relinquishes the blame on that, right? It's, it's, he, he just totally lies and says that it wasn't him who wrote this letter and it totally wasn't who wrote this letter. So there are, there, there's almost an aspect for me of reluctance that keeps Ignatius from being this savior in the text. Mm -hmm. Um, He's, he's almost kind of a, he almost brings, and I, I guess I'm curious what you guys think about this, whether he brings more salvation or if he brings more destruction, because in my opinion he definitely seems to bring more destruction to everybody that's around him
0: mm-hmm. I, I will also add that see what the wife is so again it's that kind of like i ascribe it to uh south park kind of libertarian everyone's kind of wrong and everyone's kind of right mentality mm-hmm. but like the whole time it's almost a stereotypical henpecked husband like the wife's like well you're just ruining your father's company but she's right because he doesn't care about the company.
1: He doesn't, exactly,
0: and, right. And then, and so therefore it's being poorly, well, not necessarily poorly run, it's just being run by an absentee. The person who I really feel the worst for in this is Mr. Gonzalez, uh, yeah, who is yeah, the, right. the manager who has to deal with everyone. Um, but then you're right, it does kind of get sorted out in a way where he can say, I told you so to his wife. It's such a weird way to ascribe this. Um,
1: and Miss Trixie, who worked, is the receptionist at Le- Levy Pants, who yeah. is, as as Mike said, clearly not in reality like dealing with dementia, but still comes into work and reads her magazines and falls asleep. Doesn't she end up wearing one of those like um, green green visors that yeah. you wear like in poker tournaments or whatever? Yeah. But like, but that the, is there some connection to the Levy family that so that Miss Trixie can't be fired or asked to retire because of the of the connection? So. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's something like that.
0: Like uh, she had been like hired by his father. And so he doesn't want to fire her. She has to quit. And she's, she's like a hoarder and everything. Like she doesn't know what's happening. So we're kind of stuck with her. So there's (laughs) an excuse to get her to leave.
2: Yeah. And earlier on, Mrs. Levy tries to like orchestrate this whole thing of like, of using Miss Trixie in order to get back at her husband in this strange way, because of the fact that she just wants to be able to say, aha, I was right. And so we get the, the this kind of like marital dispute that's all wrapped up in what is like this enormous lawsuit that, <laughs> that Mr. Levy ends up essentially being able to kind of pawn off on the elderly Miss Trixie with dementia. and the the whole kind of resolution ends up coming where they they change from being, levy uh pants to being levy shorts so they 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 quite literally they they (laughs) truncate and they shorten the pants into the shorts in order for uh in order for the this company to still continue being able to 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 be successful
0: actually we should mention this here because we didn't really get into it but essentially ignatius is just a paper pusher uh you know he's he's filing paperwork and by all accounts he does a fine job at it for the week and a half he's there before falling out of his chair and throwing out his back and then leading a revolution against the workers, um, against the management rather. Um, but one day across his desk comes a letter from a department store that says, you sent me like essentially waiters, like three quarter pants instead of full length pants. And Ignatius writes the most baffling letter. It's like, yeah. we consider this a lack of creativity on your part for not being able to market these pants. Yeah. How of fashion are you? Um. <laughs> it's it's really something yeah um in in two weeks he destroys everyone's life until the end which is um i guess if anything you wanted to classify this it's that impossible to define satire because Mm -hmm. i mean it even ends with a crowded scene of everyone in the same room and somehow ignatius has saved the day like it's very strange i i do i do very much like that um but is there any other scenes we should really hit on? I mean, I th- we, like you said, through our circuitous route, we've kind of talked about everything. Um, uh, we have, you know, talked about the arrest. We've talked about uh, Claude Robichaud. We've talked about the, uh, the poor uh, Mancuso who ends up having to do a beat in uh, the French Quarter in drag in order to try to route out something suspicious, which. <laughs> I mean, you can do a whole, like, kind of uh, Rosencrantz and Gildenstern style story of just poor Mancuso having to deal with the fact that, like, he's getting the shakes as he sees another green hunting cat. <laughs> um, we, we haven't really talked about the hot dog cart, uh, which we can just mention briefly. At one point, walking down the street, he sees a guy with a, I think they were lucky dogs or just, you know, a hot dog cart. He comes in off the street, has one eats like four of them, can't pay, so the only way he can make it back up is to work a ship, like doing dishes in the kitchen of a restaurant or something. Yeah. And uh, he ends up eating almost all the hot dogs on his own. Yeah. <laughs> and so he gets this job, which again <laughs> ends up back to his mom via I forget who, but someone sees him dressed like, you know, wearing a stripes and selling hot dogs, even though that he... Was-
1: only one just eating, eating them. his own hot dog yeah. yeah and it's it's just so perfect too like isn't there like a whole thing with like hot dog water and like just the whole yeah the whole yeah
2: the you know, the cart the cart ends up getting like stuck on what I would imagine are like like either uh, a divot in the road or like trolley tracks or train tracks of some sort and ends up tipping over and it's this this whole kind of uh, physical moment where the hot dog water is spilling out and Ignatius is on the ground, not able to get, not able to, not able to write himself and get himself back up, which happens a number of times throughout the story, to be honest with you, Ignatius ends up on the ground, unable to kind of like write himself at, at a number of times. It happens in the, it happens in the, uh, the Levy, pants uh the in like the business office of the levy pants it happens there with the with the hot dog cart and then in the moment of of uh of officer mancuso of his his great moment of glory when he is uh there's a, a there's a moment where uh i can't remember who it was i think it was uh lana ends up uh propositioning officer mancuso and that's like his great shining (laughs) moment that he ends up being able to like bring down the whole like pornographic business that's going on here as a result of this and he gets a promotion at work and it's all somehow related to Ignatius having the parrot that has like that stolen his earring and he ends up in front of like a bus once again having fallen down and and finds himself unconscious and it's it's the these moments where Ignatius just like it's almost kind of in he's stumbling quite literally into into some characters like Salvation and other, in this case, Officer Mancuso's and other, case, and other characters complete and other downfalls. And in the case of Officer Mancuso, he ends up getting the promotion. In the case of Jones, we haven't talked very much about Jones. We should
0: talk who's, about Jones briefly. Who's,
2: yeah. who's the, the sweeper at this nightclub. He ends up getting like promoted on like three or four different accounts. He ends up starting at the, he ends up getting like a promotion from the, the or ends up getting a like a job at Levy Pants as a result of everything that falls out from the nightclub and then gets a promotion from Mr. Levy at the end of the story so the in some in some instances Ignatius ends up very reluctantly leading to the promotion of some characters whereas in other characters leads to their complete and utter downfall and which characters are which there never seems to be much rhyme or reason to right right
1: right. and Joan Um, doesn't Joan start off getting a job at night of joy because we first meet him when he's in the police officer he's in like the precinct yeah
2: as a result of the altercation with ignatius in the very beginning of the story so it's almost as though jones's kind of promotion is always in some way tied into ignatius and so jones kind of ends up climbing up this ladder of success. Mm-hmm. and and he's not really seen as necessarily the best character either. He's the one that's trying to bring down the the owner of this bar that he's working at. Um, but but all throughout the while, Jones kind of, and he's a he's a comedic character. He's maybe one of my favorite characters in the entire story. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he, I think, is a little bit wiser than even he lets on. Um, and we get the kind of the rise of Jones reluctantly through Ignatius and his hijinks throughout the story
0: yeah no I, I I I just it's interesting because as it oftentimes when you have a character like this um you put this kind of agent of chaos this interesting character in a world with normal people um and see how they react right like this is you know superintendent or well it's not it, it just it doesn't fit it's like Wee Herman. Pee Wee Herman in the normal world, right? Mm. Um, but here, the world is also so strange, right? You know, right. it's. But Ignatius is not a normal person in a strange world. He's just a different kind of strange. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a very interesting version of what we get here. Um, so yeah, no, it's it's just it's fascinating to me. I really enjoy it. It just none of it seems to fit together, which is why it's so chaotic. It's so much fun. It's so Mm -hmm. strange. I guess I guess we should kind of finish up the plot here. So we've we've yeah. I think
2: done as good of a job as we can of kind of making our way through these different episodes, and so the 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 lawsuit with Mister Levy ends up kind of being through the through the scapegoat of Miss Trixie ends up kind of solving itself, and so it almost seems as though all of the problems have been solved, with the exception of course of the the problem of needing to get the the initial problem of needing to raise this money through getting a job ignatius getting a job of being able to pay off the the money that's owed as a result of the accident at the start of the story but the it it seems as though the some of the a lot of the other characters in the story have had their issues solved whether that's to their betterment or to their destruction and then at the very end of the story we get the the uh the mental institution that's being called ignatius is uh is At home, and for I can't remember why it is, but Irene needs to leave, but lets Ignatius know that they're going to be coming for him not to resist. Uh, and she lets him know that this is what it is that's that is befalling him. And then, almost in a deus ex machina type of a way, we get Myrna who shows up at his doorstep, and the and they kind of like get in the car and run away with one another up to New York, presumably. Mm. Um, and they they see the passing of the the ambulance or the 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 van or the I, I can't remember the way that it's described on the way to his house uh and Ignatius's one kind of like lie that he says about about it is that they I can't believe that they only sent like the standard ambulance like I would have busted out the windows of that in a heartbeat or something along those lines uh and we get the we get Myrna and Ignatius kind of like in a way, riding off into the sunset, right? Leaving yeah. this society that he hates behind yeah. and riding off into into, uh, into the sunset, into better days, maybe. I don't think that we're necessarily supposed to assume that the b- days are going to be better for Ignatius in New York, but they're definitely going to be uh, kind of a continuation, I guess, if you will, which maybe comes back, Betsy, to your, to your point earlier on about about this being a comedy in which the characters don't change. I don't think that we're to assume that Ignatius is better off or changed or worse in any way at the end of the story. I think that we're just to assume that, that these hijinks and these scenarios that he's going to uh, that are going to transpire are going to transpire in New York, just like they did in, in new Orleans. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that that kind of in finality does bring us to the end of the plot, (laughs) if you can even call it that, of this story. Um, But that's kind of where it is that it brings us.
0: Um, Before we end, um, for those of you who don't know, uh, this almost exact same cast, in fact, uh, crossed over when we did a movie episode comparing Macbeth to the tragedy of Macbeth. And it ended up on my movie podcast. And I would be negligent if I didn't mention the attempts to film this now Um, this is what they call a cursed production by all accounts so let's get into it
1: okay it
0: was written originally in 1982 so the book comes out it's a huge success as a comedy they hand it to harold Ramis, who you might know uh he's done things like say ghostbusters uh like he's good stripes you know classic 80s comedies starring john belushi john belushi died four months later
1: oh my gosh um
0: my goodness Uh, Oh, we're not even close to done.
1: Uh, Warner
0: Brothers was the one who licensed him. And so he stepped away for a bit. He's like, I can't do this. they had even cast John Belushi as Ignatius and Richard Pryor as Jones, okay? And so they stepped away when Belushi died. Someone else that worked for Warner Brothers at the time was John Waters. And John Waters was tapped to film it, starring Divine as Ignatius. And then Divine died in 1988, so it went back into development hell, where. It was sold by Warner Brothers to star John Candy, who died, and then Chris Farley, who died. (gasps) Oh Oh my gosh. In 2005, there was a version for the screen written by Steven Soderbergh, and it was going to be directed by David Gordon Green, starring Will Ferrell and Lily Tomlin. And they had the whole thing cast. They even in June did a full cast reading as part of the Nantucket Film Festival in 2005. And then in August 2005, Katrina hits. So the thing is canceled. Oh my gosh, this and is insane! In September slash October, when they were trying to see if they could still do it, the woman Helen Hill, in charge of the Louisiana Film Commission, was murdered. <gasps> oh, their connection in Louisiana fell apart, and the head of Paramount walked away with it. And since then, there's only Ooh. been one, like a stage play production of it, starring Nick Offerman in 2012 or 2015. Excuse me. But they have not tried to make a version of it since.
1: Wow, that's that crazy! Unbelievable! That is
0: insane! Wow. Um, but you know, good casting on all of those. Yes. Yeah, just thinking about thinking
2: about everybody from Belushi to Farley. I mean, the the John Candy. I mean, all of them. I could see them so perfectly in the role of Ignatius and to think yeah. that this so this so many times had been attempted to be created and ended up for 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 lack of a better description in a very Ignatius kind of a way yeah. things just kept falling apart and man that is that is fascinating Nick wow I had no idea
1: yeah
0: well I and mean, again yeah. even kind of a gritty grimy like post hairspray John Waters doing divide just like because yeah, New Orleans is kind of gross and weird and fun and it would have been neat, but no, it's just falling apart and falling apart. Like how John Goodman hasn't been in a production of this yes. back in the 80s or 90s, being yeah. his big New Orleans self, like that would have been great. Or like I just, it's, you know, it's it's all in the past, but it's just it's crazy how that kind of came together. Yeah. Absolutely. Um anyway, I guess we're wrapping it up here. Michael, uh C. Carroll, as it says on my screen. <laughs> I love you. Would you recommend this for the classroom or not and why?
2: You know, I was thinking about that as I was making my way through it. I do think that I would, um, but I would be curious what you guys think. I I, I think that in terms of the narrative structure for everything that we've talked about for the way that you could teach this text in, in its very episodic form, I do think that you could teach it in the classroom. What genre it would fall under, though, I'm curious what it is that you guys think, because I do think that it falls under the it's it's certainly a comedy. Right. And uh, Nick, you were on with us, obviously, earlier on this season when we were talking about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Mm -hmm. and how we thought that that could be something that would be taught in a uh, in the capacity of a comedy. Literature curriculum Mm -hmm. um and another story that's very episodic that's very um uh that's hilarious in its own ways and so in some ways which I think is an injustice to a confederacy of dunces as I was making my way through it Nick I knew that the question was coming as to whether we thought that this would be something that we would be able to teach Uh, and so all along the way I was I was listening to it, again, I, I listened to it on audiobook, but I was listening to it in comparison with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, another Ooh. unbelievable comedy um, that we, that we obviously had, that we've covered earlier on this season. And I think that you could teach it in the capacity of a comedy curriculum. I also think maybe in the capacity of a Southern literature Curriculum. I think that you could you you you'd be able to to fit it within its context there. Um, I, I I do think that it, that it could be taught in the classroom, and uh, I think that it would just be finding kind of the right the right pocket to to be teaching it. Betsy, you were talking earlier on about how it might be, how it might fit as a work of Catholic um, or or kind of like a religious uh, literature, of, uh, a work of uh, Catholic fiction. Uh, and so I'd, I'd be I'd be interested to, to, to hear your take on where it is that it would fit in the in the classroom. <laughs> but I do think that I, I do think that it that, that it has its place in the in the in whatever curriculum you could kind of squeeze it into uh i do think that it has its place
1: i do too i i think i I still want to keep thinking about it but as we're talking i think it could fit really nicely in a unit on um amer or in a whole course on american catholicism in literature um because we do see you know the catholic church is kind of like uh underneath all of this, in terms of it being being set in, in New Orleans, um, and and you know his Ignatius J. Riley's desire for, as you said, Mike, like geometry, order, structure, his longing for that, um, his 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 feelings of being out of place in New Orleans. I think I think there's some really interesting. Um, connections you could make to what it's like to be an American Catholic, um, mm-hmm. or even a Catholic in in New Orleans, in the Southeast, or in 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 that in uh, in New Orleans, the city specifically. So I think um, in terms of comedy, I, I don't think it gets any better. I think um, I, I do think that there's some some deeper meaning here. I don't think it's all just comedy for like slapstick sake. Like I really think that there's some deeper conversations about. Um, redemption, about um, about brokenness, about sinfulness, about pride, about um, and, and chaos and order and kind of the, the tension between those two things. Um, so I think it'd be really fun to teach, although, you know, the challenge of teaching something that um, students are forced to read and how they would receive it versus like, you know, wanting to read it and kind of delighting in all of the hilarity of it um, I think that would be, that would be a little soul crushing for me to bring this to students and have them be like, I don't get it. No, thank you. I don't know. I, don't, I want to kind of keep it sacred in my own little, like appreciating of, of this world. What about you, Nick?
0: I think it would be interesting to do this. Um, maybe not against Flannery O'Connor, just cause she's also so funny. Yeah. I think it'd be interesting to do this against a dramatic Southern Gothic novel.
1: Ooh, like, just like
0: as a comparison, you know, um, mm-hmm. And, and I don't know what, I mean, Faulkner would probably be too hard to compare it to. And right? Cormac McCarthy has no no joy ever. But, <laughs> well but you know, something yeah. like Truman Capote would be interesting because they're writing at similar mm. times and, um, and yet they come to drastically different conclusions. You know, um, it's just, to me, he's such an interesting character because yeah. the traditional Southern Gothic is something about an outsider who doesn't fit in, right? No. And Nick, I was going to bring if,
2: if you didn't bring that up, I was going to bring up that exact same point because you've brought it up on this podcast a number of times, and no. he fits within your reading of the outsider coming into this uh, to this society
0: so well. He really does. He fits it to a T. And and of course O'Toole is having fun with it because ironically, or O'Toole, uh, excuse me, is having fun with it because ironically he's exactly from this town. He right. never left this town, right. and yet he considers himself such an outsider in this world that it barely, like, registers to him. He is, you know, uh, some, you know, cleansing force trying to root out the evils of the world, but it's the world he grew up in. Like, he's not an outsider. Anyway, it's very fun, and there is some fun Southern gothicness to this, um, but it's almost entirely within his own head because, by all accounts, everyone's very polite to
1: him, actually. Right, right. Uh, I do think, it's interesting that you mentioned putting it alongside a more, like, dramatic catholic gothic novel maybe that wasn't the word you used but something a little more like serious um so i wonder and i wonder what we like to read a walker percy alongside alongside this um, you know um there are some funny parts i'm thinking of like the moviegoer but i found the moviegoer to be kind of um I don't know, uh, sad, a lot more sad than this. Yeah. And so to, to kind of put them alongside each other, I think would be fascinating. I think it'd be cool to read it alongside, although not a an American Catholic author, but Graham Greene, who yeah. does a lot of really funny stuff too. And to kind of see the contrast between um, two Catholic authors um, or even like, oh, Brides had Revisited. That would be a fascinating one too. Again, not American, but Evelyn Waugh in his sort of like, fancy kind of uh dramatizing of like uh uh, they're you know sitting underneath the tree and drinking champagne with strawberries in it you know and kind of the the money and and wealth of 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 uh, of that family in that novel too sorry to interrupt you Nick I just think that's a fascinating idea to contrast it with something so that they can kind of see the the differences and similarities
0: or, or I mean, or along the same line, something like Tennessee Williams Street, Named Desire, you know, mm, yeah. something also set in New Orleans, so overly dramatic, you know, people rending their garments and shouting to the heavens against Ignatius who's kind of fumbling through life. I just, it, 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 I think that would up it if only that, again, uh, we've talked about like Wise Blood. Wise Blood is brilliant and it's funny in its own right. But having those two next to each other is like asking who's funnier. not what you want to do you want to show the 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 comparison the extent of southern literature and so i would do something dramatic that almost needs to be poked and something like streetcar you know like those kinds of things i think would make it would make in turn confederacy funnier Mm -hmm. um but also just show the range uh you know uh comparing someone like stanley Kulowski to ignatius is just you know, a man driven by passions, but just completely different passions. Um, so there you go. That's amazing. Um, so thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our conversation about, I don't know, New Orleans's Diogenes. I, I, I'm still wrapping my head around Ignatius. I like, I like the book. The character I think is meant to poke at me. Um, I take it very personally, of course. Um, if you're uh, listening to this, and you're uh, interested in the Atlanta area, uh, we are auctioning off two more seats on this podcast, um, like we did two years ago. Uh, so check out the Marist Auction for that. Uh, also, uh, next week, I'm trying, or later this month, I'm trying to uh, tell you guys in advance, we're doing one of those very auctioned books uh, from a couple years ago. Um, Willa Cather's Death Comes for the Archbishop, uh, which we are all trying to get through right now. Um but I appreciate you. Uh Mike you want to plug the Insta?
2: Yep, uh michael.c.carol it's on Instagram. Um you can follow along there for uh some of the things that I'm in the process of making my way through uh through the publication stages um and also uh that's where you can follow along for what's to come with required reading as well. So um thank you for everybody that's been so supportive and uh, yeah, thank
0: you guys. Um, and thanks uh, to all of you out there listening for your ratings, your reviewings, and your sharings. Uh, this has been a banner year for Required Reading. Uh, we're recording this in December, even though this episode's coming out in January. So as the new year starts, I want to thank you and continue doing it. We charted something like 12 different nations. We got more than half a million downloads. Uh, and that's you. I, I, I can't download it that many times myself. That's all you <laughs> um, So thanks for what you do and tune in a few weeks when we do Death Comes for the Archbishop. Thanks, everyone.
1: No, thank you.
0: Yep. Required Reading is a product of Marist Podcasting and Dude Letter Podcasting. It is hosted by Nick Hoffman and co-hosted by Mike Burns and Mike Carroll. It is edited and produced by Nick Hoffman. The theme is "Sands" by Davis Burns. The opinions expressed are opinions of the hosts and the guests, but not of Marist School, All rights reserved. Thanks.